He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Good morning and welcome to Christ the King. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. We are still in the Easter season. The Easter season is 50 days, five zero days. It begins on Easter Sunday, the day we commemorated Jesus' resurrection. And it will end on next Sunday, Pentecost, the day we commemorate the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, reading from uh, Acts 1, which Stephen read for us at the beginning of the service, tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days, and then he was taken up into heaven. So day 40 of the Easter season, which was this past Thursday, is Ascension Day, the day we commemorate Jesus ascending to heaven. Now, for some time in the North American church, the ascension has been neglected. But in 10 European countries, Ascension Thursday is still a public holiday. However, I'm sure that in uh, post-Christian Europe, few people know and even fewer care what the ascension is about. They just happily take it as a holiday. Uh, just like in post-Christian Canada, Few people know and even fewer care what Good Friday is about. We Canadians just take it as a holiday. But the origin of the word holiday is holy day. And so such holidays as Good Friday and Ascension Thursday are witnesses to us in the West of our Christian history, a history with which we um, are rapidly losing touch. Today at Christ the King, we are commemorating the Ascension. And our text will be Hebrews 1 that Keith read for us. So please have your Bibles handy. Um, but we'll get there in a few, few minutes. <coughs> First, I have a couple of questions for you to think about as we consider the Ascension and its significance. Um, as Christians, we know that Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the dead with a glorious new resurrection body that will never die again. But here's a question. Where is the risen Jesus today? Some years ago, I was visiting a church and a woman who was a new Christian and had been attending church for perhaps a year asked me that exact question. Where is Jesus today? She had no idea. She wondered if perhaps he was living in hiding somewhere. Now, this woman knew all about the cross and about the resurrection, and she also knew about the Holy Spirit. But it seemed to her that Jesus had just kind of dropped out of sight after his resurrection, and now we've got the Holy Spirit to take things from here. I think you will agree that 
thinking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit in this disjointed way is problematic for a Christian in the long run. There's kind of um, an out of sight, out of mind thing that develops regarding Jesus. And that can cause a person's prayer and devotional life to decline. And there's a kind of, that was then, this is now, that takes over regarding the Holy Spirit. So that a person may mistakenly believe the Holy Spirit is leading them into new innovations that are at odds with the historic revelation of God in Jesus Christ and the Bible. And eventually a person may abandon the walk of faith altogether, trusting instead in the progress of science and technology or in some kind of a new age or postmodern spirituality. Now, you may be thinking, I'm not confused. I know where Jesus is today. He's gone back to heaven and he'll be coming again at the second coming. Exactly right. But here is another question. What is he doing in heaven? What has Jesus been doing since he left almost 2,000 years ago? Your answer to that question is very important. Because thinking that in effect, Jesus is just biding his time up there, waiting for the second coming, perhaps doing a little decorating in heaven to prepare a place for us, but otherwise uninvolved in subsequent history and distant from the day-to-day -day lives of his disciples on earth, having delegated all that stuff to the Holy Spirit. For practical purposes, thinking like that is not far different from thinking that the risen Jesus Christ is living in, say, Graceland, hanging out with Elvis Presley getting ready for a big comeback one of these days. I think the ascension is really important because it not only answers the question, where is the risen Jesus today, but also the question, what has he been doing there all this time? The ascension tells us that Jesus completed his resurrection from the dead by ascending to heaven and sitting down at the right hand of the Father. There he reigns forever over the universe as Christ the King. That's right, Christ the King. It is no accident, you can ask me later if you're interested, it is no accident that the name of our church declares where the risen Jesus is today and what he is doing. He is at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, reigning as king, directing and involved in every detail of his ongoing mission on earth, and interceding for us, his disciples. From the place of highest honor, authority, and executive power. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, partway through the verse, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what did he sit on? 
the throne of grace. A verse later in Hebrews, you can find it by this turning over the page to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We find mercy at the throne of grace because Jesus, our great high priest, fully and finally made purification for our sins at the cross. And we find grace to help in time of need because he who then rose from the dead and ascended to heaven is not distant and uninvolved. He is not distant from the plight of our troubled world. No, he is at work in and, and through it. And he is not distant from us. Because of the cross, the way is now open for us to draw near. And as we draw near to the throne of grace, he is intimately involved through the Holy Spirit in our daily walk of faith. Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father on whose right hand Jesus sits are not disjoint. They work together as the persons of the Trinity always do. Because although they are three persons, they are one God. The Ascension is about more than Jesus going up to heaven. It's about Jesus incarnate in his glorious resurrection body, ascending the throne of heaven and reigning as king over all. It's a picture evoked by our psalm today. Psalm 47 uh, was in the bulletin. Verses 5 to 7 say, God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with a song. It's also a picture evoked by all the hymns that we're singing in our service today. And also, for those of you who were at uh, Logan and Samantha's wedding yesterday, it was um, a picture evoked by some of the songs that they chose. Uh, one song had this chorus. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. And another song. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads or intercedes for me. Now, recognizing the ascension as really and a really important part of the Christian faith is not a new thing. Both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed um, have Jesus' ascension featuring prominently. Because the Apostles and the early church did not want us to forget its significance. And that's a good segue into Hebrews chapter 1. 
which uh, was an important text in developing the creeds. A little background. The letter to the Hebrews uh, doesn't say who wrote it or to whom it was written, but it was around and was quoted as an authoritative apostolic witness by the church fathers from the very earliest times, alongside the letters of Paul and Peter and John. Based on its content, it was written to Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Possibly they are a group of priests in Jerusalem that the book of Acts, uh, chapter 6, tells us became obedient to the faith. These would have been Levitical priests who came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ. But the occasion of the letter is because these folks, the Hebrews, are struggling in their walk of faith. Under the threat of persecution, they are losing their confidence as followers of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews wants to restore their confidence and exhort them to draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 1 has two parts. Part 1 is verses 1 to 4, which in the Greek is one big, long, giant sentence. And uh, it's, it's packed with content about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And part 2 is a series of seven quotations from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that testify that the Son is superior to any and all angels. In our limited time, we will focus on part one, but first, a quick comment on why all this concern about angels? Well, the Hebrews, in their struggles and uncertainties, were being tempted to retreat back into what they knew, the law of Moses, the priesthood of Aaron, the kingship of David, and the Judaism of their time held that the law of Moses was given on Mount Sinai through angels. And angels were thought to play other dominant roles, um, especially in the days of the Messiah or the Christ. The writer of Hebrews is at pains in this letter to prove from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God and absolutely superior in every way to any and all angels. Further, he is the ultimate prophet, superior to Moses, the ultimate high priest, superior to Aaron, and the ultimate king, superior to David. As I said, verses 1 to 4 in the Greek, it's one big long sentence. And the structure of this sentence in the Greek is very interesting. The main clause is this. In these last days, God has spoken to us through the Son. It comes at the start of uh, verse 2 in our English translation. Everything in verse 1 is a subordinate clause that describes the God who has spoken to us he is the one who previously spoke 
at many times and in many ways to the Jewish forefathers, including through the law of Moses, the priesthood of Aaron and the kingship of David. But now in these last days, last days is a phrase that was used to talk about the days of the Messiah or the Christ. In these last days, Jesus Christ is the word of God spoken to us. The full and final revelation of God, the ultimate prophet superior to Moses. The rest of the passage is, that is like the rest of, of verse two and all of three and four, is a series of three subordinate clauses that describe the son, his nature, his work, both ongoing and completed work, his status. The first and second clauses are the remainder of verse two. They describe the son as the one whom God appointed the heir of all things and through whom also God created the world. These two clauses together describe the relationship between God the Father and God the Son in eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. The first clause, whom he appointed the heir of all things, says, the Son is the Father's unique heir. In the end, all that the Father has, which is everything, the Son inherits. The second clause, through whom also he created the world, says the Son was the agent of all creation, including the angels who are part of creation. In the beginning, the Father created everything through the Son, so the Son, through whom all things were made in the beginning, will inherit all things in the end. He is co-eternal with the Father. The Nicene Creed speaks about these truths, about the nature of the Son, when it speaks of Jesus Christ as the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, begotten, not made, through him all things were made. Moving on. The final subordinate clause that describes the Son takes up all of verse 3 and 4 in our English translations. In the Greek, the heart of this clause describes the Son as the one who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The rest of verse three and four is made up of participle phrases. Now these participle phrases have incredibly important content about the nature, work, and status of the son. Yet, in the midst of these important things, the writer of Hebrews has chosen to emphasize that the son sat down at the right hand of the father in heaven. Keep this in mind as we unpack the content of verse three and four in five quick points. So point one. <laughs> About the nature of the sun, verse three speaks of the sun being the radiance 
of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In, in one of Keith's recent uh, sermons from uh, 1 John, we saw that God is light. Here it says, the sun is the radiance of the glory of God. This is another way of saying the sun is light as the Father is light. In other words, the eternally begotten Son has the same nature as the Father. Yet they are also distinct. Because it also says that the Son is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. So the Son's nature is the same as the Father's, but they are not the same person. The Nicene Creed speaks of these truths about the nature of the Son in relationship to the Father by saying, God from God, light from light, true God from true God of one being with the Father. Point two, about this, the ongoing work of the Son, verse three speaks of the Son upholding the universe by the word of his power. The word translated upholds has a dynamic sense to it. Rather than just holding things up, it has the sense of carrying them. So not only was all creation made through the sun, but also creation is carried along by the word of his power. We can think of the word of his power as the expression of his perfect will and his ceaseless intercession for his people that we would line up with his perfect will. This describes well the everlasting reign of Christ the King. He is not distant, but intimately involved in our earthly existence and sovereign over the unfolding of his mission in history. Point three, about the completed work of the Son, verse three speaks of the Son having made purification for sins. This is Christ's completed work on the cross. Unlike the priests in the Jewish temple who had to stand day after day after day after day offering animal sacrifices that could never take away sins, Jesus offered himself once, the perfect sacrifice that makes purification for all sins for all time. Jesus is the ultimate high priest, superior to Aaron. Point four, after making this decisive purification for sins, verse three says, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This seems to move rather abruptly from the cross to the coronation, to his crowning as king. But if we think of the resurrection as being completed in the ascension, and the ascension as ascending the throne of heaven, you know, it's all of one piece. The cross is followed by the crown. Jesus humbled himself to the lowest place at the cross, and then he was exalted to the highest place, 
with a crown and a name above every other, including above the name of any angel. So my final point five is that in verse four it says, Jesus is as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, to conclude, I want to come back to how the writer of Hebrews chose in the midst of other important things to emphasize that Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. I believe the reason for this has to do with a verse from the Psalms. It is uh, the verse um, Psalm 110 verse 1. It's the verse in the Old Testament most quoted in the whole of the New Testament. So let's take a look at it. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Um, I don't have the page numbers. So when somebody finds it, you can call out the page number. 292 in the small print. 565 in the large print. 565 in the large print. Psalm 110. You see there on the page, it's a psalm of David, a psalm of King David. The first verse reads, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Notice the first word, Lord. It's in all caps. It is a representation of the Hebrew name of God, the Tetragrammaton. The second word, Lord, has a capital L, but then small letters. This is a title that was used for addressing a superior. So David is saying in his psalm that God speaks to someone who is a superior of David, David's Lord, and invites that individual to sit at God's right hand until God deals with his enemies. Now, in, in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, there is there recorded uh, an incident where Jesus is in Jerusalem in the week that ends with the cross, and he's confronting some Jewish leaders with a paradox involving this verse. The paradox is that the Hebrew scriptures reveal the Messiah, the Christ, as both David's son and David's Lord. How can the Christ be both his son and his Lord? The Jewish leaders had no answer. But the resolution is this, that the Christ is no ordinary man because he is not just a man. He is also God, God the Son. Later in these same three Gospels, there is recorded where Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin after his arrest. And people are bringing charges against him um, to, to try to have him executed, but nothing sticks until this. In response to the direct question, are you the Christ? Jesus replies, yes, and says that they will see him seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. 
At these words, the chief priest tears his robe, the Sanhedrin cries blasphemy, and they condemn him to death. Back to our passage. The Hebrews would have been familiar with all these things. So the writer emphasizes that at the ascension, the crucified and risen Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 110, verse 1, as he said he would when he answered the Sanhedrin. He is David's son and David's Lord, who sat down at the right hand of the capital L-O-R-D, Lord, where he remains to this day the Son of God, superior to all angels, the ultimate prophet, superior to Moses, the ultimate high priest, superior to Aaron, the ultimate king, superior to David. He is Christ the King, not distant, but intimately involved in our daily walk of faith and sovereign over his worldwide mission of which we are a part to the end of the earth, to the end of the age. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Amen.